Welcome to the SaaS Product Power Breakfast with a special guest Simon Boucher. Your host today is Thomas Otter and uh, Dave Kellogg may or may not be joining us, but um, hey, here we are on the show. Simon, Simon, what would you rather I call you today? Yeah, you can you can pick whatever is uh, whatever is easier for you, Thomas. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll try Simon because that's kind of what you that's the name your parents gave me. So yeah. uh, gave you so. Um, Gosh, we've known each other for oh, probably probably six years now. I think five or six years now. I think uh, we've, yeah, we've got to know each other. Time uh, time flies. Maybe you could just start off by giving us a bit of background um, um, on on what you, you know, your career so far and what you've what you've done and so on and what and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so first, Thomas, thanks for thanks for having having me. Uh, it's true that uh, we've met uh, a while ago already, even if it's uh, if it seems. Uh, uh, not too far away for me. Um, so I, I started my career back in 2009, right after college. I, uh, I co-founded the first company in HR, uh, an HR tech startup, uh, more specifically in recruiting. The company was, uh, was called Multiposting. Um, so we've, um, uh, we've grown this company from 2009 to end of 2015, um, zero to about hundred employees and, uh, Zero to about ten million AR, um, and we ended up being acquired by uh, by SAP, uh, SAP Success Factors, more specifically the HR line of business of uh, of SAP. Um, and um, after that, I spent a couple of years at SAP, where I had the chance to uh, work with you, Thomas, and to meet a lot of other people uh, very talented at SAP. Uh, that said, after two years, it was probably, you know, uh, making it a career at SAP and staying with the gigantic software, uh, software company wasn't really necessarily what I wanted to do with, uh, with the rest of my life. So I, uh, I took a quick break, a, a quick break, uh, at two kids, uh, and then I decided to uh, launch a new startup, uh, which I did end of 2019. Uh, we actually launched our MVP and, uh, um, in, in January 2020, so just uh, just before COVID. Um, so I'm used to say that uh, I'm in the business of launching business post-crisis. Uh, the first one was uh, after the financial crisis, and uh, the other one was uh, in the midst of the COVID crisis. Um, so this new company is called Revere. Um, I guess we're gonna we're gonna talk about it uh, later on in the pod, but um, uh, it's been a great uh, a great ride so far. Uh, 18 months in, uh, we have now 30 people in the team and. Uh, and it's super exciting, super exciting again. So um, I'm, I'm based in Paris, uh, even if we try to operate globally now. So that's, uh, that's the background in a, in a, in a nutshell. Cool, Simon. So let's, let's, let's go back a bit and talk about, you know, maybe comparing, you know, product management, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, when you start, first started with, with, you know, product management today, how have things you know, what's changed and maybe what's, uh, you know, what's stayed the same? How, how, how did you approach, how would you have approached, you know, building a company and building product then compared to now? What's, what's different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to start with a disclaimer. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not a product manager. I'm a general manager. I'm a founder. Uh, so, of course, building product is part of my day-to-day job, but um this is not my, you know, strongest area of expertise. That said, I think that what has changed, if I compare my two startups, my two companies, um, the big, big shift is um, for the first one, people managing the products, they were just basically managing a roadmap, right? They were creating, building the roadmap and their OKR and the goal they had for themselves was to deliver the roadmap. Um, and now for this new project, 
we had to rethink a little bit the way we build the products uh, and more importantly, how we think about the role of product management. And the big shift for me is when you manage a product, you no longer manage just the product. You should be managing a business unit. Um, and the KPIs and the OKR we set to the product team uh, is no longer roadmap item that should be delivered or customer's request that should be you know, uh, delivered and shipped. Uh, it's about increasing usage. It's about driving the NPS up. Uh, generally speaking, it's about generating growth and, and, and develop a revenue line much more than just develop a product. And frankly, it changes the perspective um, of the product manager uh, because they need to think much more holistically about the products. It's not just about feature. It's about kind of the experience you can, uh, you can deliver. Um, because I truly believe that now in SaaS, um, you know, it's, it's about offering a smooth experience and removing friction much more than offering new feature. So that's, you know, we can, we can elaborate on that, but really this, this transition to just the roadmap to the business units uh, and uh, the features to um, the actual end user value and the growth for the organization is to me the, the big shift that happened between my two projects and two, and two startups. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, uh, you know, I've seen, <clears throat> there's really been, I think, in the last five years of a, a real shift and, and change in product management as a discipline. You know, um, it, it's become... You know, much more complex um, uh, and had, has had to become much more much more business focused the thing that that I would see as changing a lot and I think you 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 uh, insinuated or implied this a bit is that it's all a lot more analytical now than it used to be you know um, product managers in the past you often sort of say oh I think we should build a B or C and you know now Product managers have a lot more data and um, a lot more facts on hand to make to make decisions about what to build and what not to build. Yeah, that, so that's for sure. From day one, you know, we implemented a series of tools for this new for this new venture um, to really collect data on what user uh, would pick up on or, or, or not pick up in the product, uh, where we had friction because you know I. I I like this, um, this concept of removing friction, especially when you have a self-serve product, which is the case of uh, more and more SaaS product these days. Um, because when you add a feature, you theoretically add value to your end user, but you also add a lot of friction. Yeah, the example right. would be, you know, you have a, let's say you have a perf review, um, uh, you know, HR tool, um, and you have solved this process and now employee can, can perform perf review in like 30 minutes and this process that used to be painful is cool. If you add up a feature to, let's say, I don't know, recommend learning content after a perf review, um, it sounds great on paper and this is probably something you would have done 10 years ago, but potentially you are adding yet another form or, you know, another profile that the user has to fear or another step in the perf review process that you have to take, increasing the time you spend from 30 to maybe 40 minutes. And just by doing so, you're basically creating friction and de you're degrading the experience. And while you think that you are adding value to your product and you are creating more value for the end user, you are in fact uh, killing, uh, killing it or killing your product uh, or shooting, your, shooting yourself in the, in the foot. And, and that's really you know, something we spend a lot of time on um, here at Revere, like just trying to figure out not only the features, but the way to kind of um, 
make the time to value uh, shorter, right? And removing the friction. And this is really what the data should be should be used to, and uh, and and what product management is now about, in my opinion. Right. Oh, that's that's that sort of echoes quite a bit what we've heard from a couple of other, you know, a couple of other guests. We had um, some folks on from from um, a couple of software companies that build, um, you know, help help build tools around uh, driving product led product led growth. And yeah. you know, if I think about what what you know, both your products in in the sense, both multi posting and and reveal have an element of a kind of a, a, a freemium or or some kind of uh, user led adoption that drives the you know drives the product rather than classical enterprise software which you you know you have a long sales cycle and you pitch it to you know you pitch it to a bunch of executives and then they buy it and then you know eventually people might may or may not use it you know um, a lot of software is shifting from that model to to a much more um, end user um, adoptive centric uh, uh, centric kind of model you know? yeah it's it's true that you know um, both products and both companies had an element of kind of self serve and easiness of use but frankly you know when I see the amount of time we have spent just about on the onboarding process so you get uh, I'll get into the details, but basically Reveal is a collaborative platform where two, you know, B2B companies can connect and exchange CRM data. It enables to identify automatically common customers or joint opportunities, connect your reps, uh, exchange leads, that kind of use cases. And in order to use the product and to get the value, you need to do two, two critical things. One is provide us access to your CRM, whether it's Salesforce or any other vendor you use. And B, you need to start sending invite to partners, so similar to social network, but for company. And these two items takes, you know, it, there are a lot of transactions that are happening in the, you know, in the in the back office. Um, and in order to deliver the value, uh, and we went through an exercise to really make it feel simple. Uh, and you can now do that and get on board within almost five minutes. It's a very guided onboarding, and step by step, you get to the value. Um, with a fairly complicated business process, right? Because exchanging CRM data with other companies and with third parties is not obvious from a, a security, a trust standpoint. So there are many aspects, yep. but we have spent countless hours just focusing on the what's going to happen between the moment you put your email and you sign up and the moment you get value and how can we make sure that this, this, uh, this phase is 10 minutes instead of, you know, two weeks. Because the difference uh, for us as a business is success or failure between these two, because if it's two weeks, nobody you know comes back to your product ever, right? right? So you need to you need to hook them, um, and and that's really, you know, it's it's about removing and not adding, um, and that's uh, that's that's really hard to do, right? Uh, like removing stuff and not not building stuff is uh, is often much harder than 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 doing the, the opposite. Yeah, the the whole I think it was yeah probably almost every quote in the world is either you know Abraham Lincoln, Einstein, or Mark Twain. But I think you know Einstein had one about you know about simple stuff being uh, being really difficult to difficult to do, and you know I think that's right. Um, you know on you know it, it's interesting when you think about you know product management. You know the, this point about not building stuff, I think it's really really important. I I advise a lot of my clients to do what's called a negative roadmap. Where they actually, you know, write down the things you're not going to do, and be be really deliberate about about writing down the things you're not going to do. You know, so for instance, let's imagine for a moment you, you know, um, you know that at some point you're going to have to put the product into Mandarin, but you write down clearly no Mandarin in Q1. You know, so that 
it's very clear that if someone comes along and says, oh, you know, can we do Mandarin this quarter? You can say, you can point them to the wall and say, well, actually, no. And you know, so you're not arguing constantly about, about scope creep. Um, you know, I've, I find that a good, a good trick. But actually, this whole philosophy of, of trying not to build, trying to build as little as possible is, is it's quite counterintuitive, but I think it's a very powerful, you know, it's a very powerful way of thinking about building product. Yeah, and look, it's supported by data. I mean, when you look at the data for any SaaS product, so I'm, I'm using mine as an example, but I think it can be it can be extrapolated to other products. Basically, you would say you would see that uh, 90% of users are using the core capability and the core feature of your product, and all the the small stuff that you have added, uh, thinking that you have really reinvented, um, you know, <laughs> hot water uh, are are very less used, right? So it, it shows that focusing on the core value proposition of your product, making it uh, as frictionless, as simple, as useful, um, as delightful as possible uh, is really what moves the needle and not necessarily uh, adding more stuff. So that's, yeah, it's, but it's easy to say. It's really hard to do, um, but having data available is now making it, uh, I mean, easier to digest, especially for people like me that are not, product people, but kind of founders, and we want stuff built to just get, you know, customer signed and, and, and to just feel that we are producing stuff and shipping features because it's, it's reassuring. But uh, at the end of the day, this is, this is usually not the good move. Yeah. Um, I find also I've been working with a few uh, people that have been pivoting from consulting to, to, to product. And, you know, in the consulting world, there's a very clear line between the you know, the amount of code you produce. So in other words, how many are, you know, the typically the amount of code you produce and the price you can charge for it. You know? They often yeah. get for this sort of time and materials world where there's this direct correlation between how complicated something is and how much people pay, pay you for it. And, yeah. you know, when you build a product, um, your customer doesn't care how many lines of code are, are behind this thing um, or how many features they, it has. They've got a business problem to solve. So it, comes down to understanding really fundamentally understanding what that business problem is you're trying to solve so maybe we roll this back because i know a bit about your business but i think you know that our listeners don't so so maybe take me back and 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 talk me through the the genesis of reveal what was the or what is the business problem that you're trying to solve what is the 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 itch you tried to scratch um and let's let's start from there and then and, and then build up to where it is today Sure, sure. Um, so look, it comes from, you know, obviously uh, it comes from my past experiences for our first company. Uh, we've built thousands of integrations with job boards, with social network, enabling large corporations to distribute their job postings on these channels. And also we've built numerous integrations with the SAP success factors, the workday, the, you know, all the AT, the applicant tracking system of the world. So based inherently, we were uh, a small vertical feature. Uh, but we were kind of dependent and integrated with many, many other players in the ecosystem that were, right. uh, for, for most of them, much, much bigger than, than we did. And in our go-to-market strategy, we very quickly understood that uh, the more connection, the more data, the more intelligence we could extract from this ecosystem, um, the, um, the, 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 the more efficient we're going to be uh, from a sales standpoint. Because... You know, we are all selling to the same people. Uh, right. We are all selling to the same buyers. And uh, we needed to find a way to collaborate. And every time we did so, it led to the best deal for us. It 
ended up, you know, uh, it led to an acquisition to some extent as well because sure. that's how we created uh, the connection with uh, with SAP and and the other right. that we. So are that when you when you're multi posting and you need to, you know, you were going to sell to I don't know Car Four, you know, you would need to you would need to, you know, you could go in as a you know, as a single, let's go and try and sell this one little thing into car four. But that's a typical yeah. uphill battle. And what you actually needed to do is you needed to build alliances, you know, and you would go in together with another with another vendor. It might be a consulting partner or it might be yeah. another it might be another another software vendor to solve a bigger business problem uh, or a bu- bigger bu- business opportunity for the customer, right? Yeah, we, w- we would need to understand the context of the accounts. Uh, who can help? Who is in there already uh, that we know? Uh, so we can, A, you know, either leverage the ecosystem to collaborate with a consulting firm or, you know, sales rep at SAP, for instance, but also just simply provide our sales team and our field team with more knowledge and more intel and more information to have a time to market and a value prop and simply a way to position the product that was uh, just, you know, more, uh, more efficient and aligned with the, with the company and with the, with the prospect need. And actually this is something we have tried to do. Uh, we, we saw on several occasions that it led to the best deal we had. Um, really it was, it was obvious to us, but it never scaled. So it never became kind of uh a strong part of our good market engine and, and, and strategy. Because right, because you had to build these personal relations. You had to build, you know, salesperson I mean, by salesperson had to build these informal relationships with, you know, the salespeople at those other software companies or there would be partner managers that would sometimes act as a gate or sometimes act as a, as a wall uh, in terms of how you would communicate with those, you know, with those um often with those other other software companies and so there would be this partner management person and you need to have the certification this relationship and da 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 and you'd sit down once a quarter and you maybe have a, a you know joint pipeline discussion but those processes were were kind of disjointed and and there wasn't much intelligence in them right yeah no exactly and and you know so that's what we've experienced from a kind of business problem standpoint and a personal business problem that we have experienced and then at the same time i think over the past Maybe five, six years, there is uh, something that is happening, uh, like kind of a deeper trend where companies tend to be more open uh, from a product standpoint, you know, APIs and so on. So now it's very easy to interconnect and to connect with others. And, and, and even culturally, you see more and more products that are um, leaning to um, what we call B2B collaboration. So if you think Snowflake enabling exchange, large exchange of data between two organizations, if you think Slack uh, raising the Slack channels and many other examples in B2B, uh, making the exchange of information, of data, of communication much, much easier between, between companies. So it means that culturally, even, you know, you and I, Thomas, we, uh, worked at SAP. SAP is not a culturally very open, you know, company. It's kind of, uh, mm-hmm. the one stop shop that does a little bit of everything and, and can deliver and help you run your business from, uh, uh, from A to, to Z, basically. But even SAP is, you know, becoming a platform, trying to build connection outside of their own kind of, uh, um, you know, historical ecosystem and so on. So, you know, if you combine this business kind of problem or potentially business upside, you can create by collecting information and this deeper trend where you see more and more companies collaborating and trying to kind of, if you take only the tech companies uh, building integration right from the start, right, many uh, startups are launching their products and they have an API first mentality. Um, they focus on one specific feature back to the point we discussed. And instead of building other, you know, features in the product, they tend to partner up and integrate with others just to extend 
uh, the value prop they can offer. So this is really uh, what we what we have seen, uh, and all of that uh, led to this idea of Revia. And just to to re-explain uh, what the platform does, uh, it's basically a social network for companies. So uh, any company or any you know partnership manager or sales uh, salesperson from a company can sign up, uh, create the company workspace, uh, and the company therefore exists in our network because we consider our platform as a network as well. And then you can start sending invites similar to LinkedIn, but instead of uh, inviting you, Thomas, I would invite, you know, hotel advisory or any company you work for. And effectively, we, you know, we are connected to Revere. And on both sides, we are connecting uh, our CRM, right? And then we have a bunch of tools enabling um, um, uh, use cases like comparing the data, exchanging the data, co-enriching the data. Uh, and we serve as the... We are the middlemen, basically, making it secure, compliance. We ensure GDPR compliance, for instance, by uh, uh, preventing any sharing of uh, PII. So we, we have built a bunch of uh, guardrails and features um, so you can maximize the upsize and minimize the risk and, uh, and, and, and bring the, the compliance risk and the security risk to almost zero uh, when using the platform. So that's, that's really what we, what we have done. And we serve the exact use case we described, like, Teams that are uh, collaborating and partnering up, they can now access, let's take an example, uh, you have built an integration with uh, company B, and you know that every time this integration is activated by one of your customer, then the net retention of this customer goes up by 100% because they get more value and the product becomes more sticky. Uh, what you can do is um, um, very easily know uh, the list of common customers, uh, the ones where the integration is activated, the ones where it's not, and then uh, put in place a process and you know uh, trigger alerts to your CSM team to make sure that this is offered to all your customers and all your joint customers very, very, very easily. Um, so that's how we drive business impact. That's one example, but I can give you you know uh, dozens of use cases and ways to to consume and use the data. Right, and. But in, in, in essence, the business is dependent on, on, on growing this network. And so that's where it comes back again to that point of view of, you know, simplicity of, simplicity of onboarding being so significant and so important to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, every time a new company joins the network, uh, we have a freemium model. So uh, you join, uh, the platform is entirely free. And the reason for the platform being free is not because, you know, we don't expect to generate revenue. It's because we want you first to get to value and invite partners. Uh, so it's a, it's a win-win situation because on one end you get some value, let's say, you know, you and I connect and we start, you know, creating pipeline for each other. And uh, on the other end, since I invited you, you start thinking about uh, partner C that you are working with and you invite them creating a net new user, a net new company, a net new node in the network. And that's, um, you know, 75% of our users and, and companies that join the network, they came through invites. Uh, so we have a very limited amount of companies, only one, you know, uh, one quarter of the company that are actually coming, you know, uh, signing up on our website without getting any invites first. Right. So it's, it's really a very interesting motion. And we went from just to give um, uh, the audience, you know, a sense of uh, the size of the network from zero in January 2020 to now 2,500 companies. And we think we're going to close the year at, you know, about between four and 5,000 companies um, in the network. And um, yeah, it's super, it's super exciting. Uh, if I compare with uh, um, traditional direct sales motion where you have to kind of call and email each and every prospect to acquire customers, 
it's a very different model and uh, and super exciting. Oh, that's so cool! I'm so glad to see that that you know that going going from going from strength to strength. So I want to take you back a bit to to yeah when you were acquired um, um, because I, I find myself personally in my business now working with a number of you know, a number of founders who who you know find themselves in a situation where they they that you know their business is approached by you know by a larger vendor and, and they they make a decision to get acquired and uh, you know many of these founders have never actually worked in a big company before and they suddenly find themselves you know working for you know working for a big company um, you know if you think back to those those um, you know to that process of you know of being acquired and then your your post yeah, your post merger experience. What would what would your advice to to you know other founders be that are in that you know that are in that situation? What what would you you know what would you suggest them? What did you think you did well, and what would you wish you would have done differently going through mm. that process again? Yeah, I'm I'm always very careful about giving advice because the one thing I, I took away from this experience is uh you know it takes so much luck and uh, an incredible alignment of planets. That I think every situation is very, very different. So it's it's kind of um, you know obvious to say that, but you know uh, it's uh, it's hard to have a blanket statement saying, hey, here is the the things you need to do when you get acquired. In our specific case, I think that, <clears throat> and if um, anyone from SAP ever listens to this podcast, I think you know largely due to SAP very welcoming policy and, and approach to M and A. Um, you know, all in all, the acquisition went really, really well. Uh, I think about 60% or 70% of the staff is still uh, at SAP now, uh, which is almost five years after the acquisition, which shows, you know, um, uh, in my opinion, a very good integration of the company. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's, that's, that's something that, uh, I'm, I'm really happy with and, and kind of proud of. So this is something we've, uh, we've, uh, we've done well, uh, in my opinion. I mean, <clears throat> A couple of things that I took away um, to, to kind of share share the experience, if not advice. Um, the first one is I've spent probably too much time trying to protect uh, and to protect our brand, to protect our products, uh, and to try to keep it alive. Um, and it, it takes a lot of efforts uh, and energy to do that as a founder. So it's you know, it's it's really hard to let go on one end because you know you have uh, you have been working on a project and a product for years and and at some point it, it becomes successful and you get acquired so you want it to have visibility and it makes you proud but on the other end uh, it, it's it's also pointless right if you are a hundred people startup acquired by a hundred fifty thousand employee company the brand's gonna be absorbed and you will be part of the big machine you know at some point right so. Maybe what I what I would do differently is embrace that a little bit more uh, and start focusing on 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 different things. And the one thing I would focus more on uh, and earlier on is how do we integrate and find a place for uh, the employees, even if most of them are still are still at SAP. Um, there's been a year post acquisition where, uh, for instance, my entire sales team they didn't really have a role, right? Uh, and these guys, they were all young, great salespeople, uh, cloud native, they know how to sell cloud. So they, they have everything they need to be successful at the safety, and I think they are now. Uh, but it took 12 to maybe 18 months in some cases to find them a role. Um, and we probably could have done it better uh, because I was focused 
trying to keep the brand alive and a little bit of an ego trip, if you will, and that's that's potentially something uh, I would have done. Um, I would have done differently. Um, and uh, along with that, I think the other thing is um, there is no point about complaining about you know the painful processes and the corporate bullshit that uh, this larger organization creates. It's a big change, but you know, you have to deal with it, right? At the end of the day, you have sold your startup uh, to a large corporation. So this is, this is, uh, this is your burden to accept it um, and to adapt. And actually, when you are the startup guy, you are supposed to be good at adapting uh, and not necessarily the other way around. So uh, that's, that's also something I could, you know, potentially um, do, do, do differently. Even if, again, uh, in our specific case, I think that it went really well. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, we have uh, almost everything was positive for us uh, if I look at the big picture. So uh, that's that's it's super nice to hear that you think it went so well because, you know, that was partly my fault. Uh, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> it was, actually. <laughs> but, um, um, you yeah, know, if I think back to that, I'd also say, you know, from the other side with the, with the um, when you are, yeah, when you are the acquirer, um, you acquired the business for a reason, right? And the reason was that you weren't capable or you, you didn't have the ability to build, you know, to build that capability yourselves. So, you know, it's always good to try and listen to things that the startup has done that they do differently from you. And um, I think the best big software companies try and learn from the startups that they acquire. Uh, many yeah. of them don't. They, they, they too quickly, they force you into... You know the the big company's way of doing things, and I think it's 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 good when the big company steps back and says, "Okay, you know what can we learn from this from this startup? Not just in terms of actual product and sales, but in terms of some of their business, you know, some of their business practices. For instance, some of the tooling choices, some of the architectural decisions they've made. You know, often, uh, you know, especially today, you know, a well-funded startup." is probably making, sometimes making better architectural decisions or more modern architectural decisions than the company that's acquiring them. And yeah. um, I think sometimes the, the big companies miss that, um, you know, especially the bigger companies, you know, like an SAP that at the time was in a transition from, you know, on-premise mm. to cloud. Um, you know, perhaps they could have spent a little bit more time, you know, actually uh, learning from, you know, especially in areas like 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 DevOps and and and. And, um, you know, some of the efforts, some of the link between, you know, uh, um, development product and customer support. Um, mm. I think startups generally have been doing that, have been doing that better than the large enterprises have been doing. So that I think there was some opportunities, I think, for the big com- bigger companies to learn from the startups, which they don't, which they don't yeah. uh, uh, tend to, you know, tend to do. Um, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and I'm not saying that, um, you know, as the startup, you shouldn't try to kind of, uh, bring your or, or, or be vocal uh, and and try to share your best practices and what you have done well. It's just in terms of positioning and approach, um, it's more being an influencer and trying to kind of explain what you have done uh, instead of pushing back on the stupid thing that you see, right? Because yeah. obviously, uh, when you are you know the startup guy that has been the product that is used by let's say 500,000 people or 1 million people and you uh, start working with an engineering team that is building a product for 100 million people and managing payroll it's easy to say okay everything you have done is crap uh, but at the end of the day it's not right it's it's a very complicated problem to solve uh, so 
you know, being an influencer is better than just pushing back and telling people that they don't know how to uh, run, uh, you know, a cloud, a cloud product, for instance. And, and I think that I'm not saying that we have done that, but there is a little bit of it, right, sure. uh, from when, when you are a startup. And I think that's, that's probably not, uh, it's not a good way to embrace, you know, this new, this new situation that you are in yeah. when you get acquired. Yeah. The, the other thing that I'd say to, to founders when they do acquisition is they tend to worry about the, I mean, you, you implied this, you tend to sort of worry about the, the sanctity of your product. But, you know, I think one of the things that I would suggest you aim to do in at least for the first six months is, you know, guard your sales force. Um, uh, because what you want to do when you come on board is you want, you know, in the first six months after acquisition, you want to hit your numbers. Right. Yep. And the way you're going yep. to hit your numbers is with your own sales force, not with the, you know, what, not with the sales force of the, of the acquired company, of the acquiring yep. company. So, yeah, I think there's a whole field dimension there that I think a lot of, a lot of founders are you know, naive about. They imagine that, oh, great, suddenly we're going to have, um, you know, thousands of salespeople selling their product. And actually, your biggest challenge at, at, as a startup when acquired by a big company is actually convincing the sales force to pay you any attention in the first place. And, and uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you disband your standalone sales force too quickly, um, you lose all leverage and you're then... You know, you're dependent on on people that don't know your product. Um, you don't know your product selling it. So, you know, my advice to to the to to startups is who are acquired is um, uh, while there are great potential sales force synergies, um, they don't come as quickly as you as you uh, imagine. So, you know, protect your um, you know protect your sales force. Um, you know, for as long as you for as long as you can. You know, even though there will be pressure to to you know, roll it in and disband it, and so on. You know, that's the area where I would I would push back um, uh, more than on the um, engineering integration side, because you know um, um, the the there'll be a, the engineering integration happens more slowly anyway. You know. Yeah, and and you know, I have a, actually it reminds me of an anecdote with uh, when we got acquired. It took six more than six months to be on the SAP price list. And the first deal that, you know, got signed without us uh, interfering or supporting in any way uh, was 12 months post-acquisition, right? Yeah. So, and it was actually, I remember this one because it was sold uh, as a bundle, um, you know, in the Success Factor suite uh, in, I think it was Azerbaijan or, you know, a country <laughs> like that. So at some point I, I receive a note from someone saying, Hey, we have closed this 30 K deal or whatever with this, uh, Azerbaijan uh, oil and gas company. I'm like, okay, this is, this is really getting insane, but it took, it took 12 months to, to get there. Oh, right. So funny. it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see that time and time again with, 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 um, startups as it takes so long for the, when they're acquired for the, for the, for the sales machine to, you know, the big company to understand what, what it is they've acquired and also to get it into the right kit bag, into the right SKUs and the right, you know, all those, all those processes. You know, you, you don't think about that. You think always you think about, oh, you know, we've got this architectural integration or, you know, how are we going to move from middleware A to middleware B? And, you you know, all the technical stuff uh, is, is um, you know, is a big deal. But it's actually those, it's those things like, like price lists and, um, and sales quotas and so on that, that um, you know, take, take much, much longer than you yeah, much much longer than you imagine. 
And you also have to understand, you know, uh, when you're a founder, when you sell your business, you always think that you got acquired because you have a, you know, a great business on, on all fronts. But usually there is an angle. Is it a product acquisition? Is it a sales-driven acquisition because you have a U.S. player that wants to expand in Europe, for instance? So what's really the what's the business case? So for us, I think it was mostly a product um, and a feature type of acquisition. So let's acquire a feature that is much needed by you know uh, a large number of uh, existing customers and and it makes sense to to have it because we can't build it uh, but understanding why uh, it was done is probably not something that is um, you know completely explained by the MA team or even the the, the the team that sponsors the deal and I think it's important to understand you know why it's done because it, it it's going to help you focus on the right things and uh, and and put your energy uh, in the right areas yeah yeah. Yeah, I th- again, I, when I look back at that, I think you did that, you know, I think you handled that acquisition, yeah, acquisition really well. I mean, you make it sound like it was easy and it was, you know, it wasn't, you know, the post, you know, it's, it's, you know, it is, it is, you know, complicated, the post acquisition, uh, you know, you're the post merger acquisition activities. They're not, they're not straightforward, you know. No, no. I, I, actually, I think the year post acquisition was the year I worked, you know, I worked more than the year we were selling the business because it's, it was, you know, a lot of moving parts. So the the immediate period right after the the, the, the closing is is kind of tough, right? And you don't necessarily anticipate that because you think, hey, it's closed, so now I'm done, and and you know it's success. But um, there is there is quite a bit of work to be done right after. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, it's it's glad to hear that. You know, glad to hear that your time at at SAP wasn't totally dreadful. That's good. <laughs> it wasn't. It was. It wasn't. Right. I'm. I'm not saying that because uh, because you're there. Right. It's. It's. It's really. It was a good experience, and I uh, always recommend you know uh, founders to consider SAP as a acquirer. So I'm. A, I'm a strong promoter. Cool. Cool. So one of the things that that you know continues to surprise me, and I don't know why it continues to surprise me because you know it's been going on for ten years. Is that you know when you when as an outsider you think about France, right? You you know you think about like long lunches and red wine and like people going on strike and really good food and stuff. You know that's what you think about when you think about France and people yeah. arguing about philosophy and cafes. You know that's what you imagine, right? People yeah. do. All you know, I'm being I'm being over simplistic here, but that's you know you're kind of like your whole Sartre and all the rest of it. You know, people everyone knows. You know, people study Sartre at junior school and then they you know they they. They can, you know, talk for hours and philosophize about things and there's this great, beautiful buildings in Paris and all the rest of it. And, and so, but you don't think about, you know, uh, France as a, um, as a tech innovation spot. And, you know, what I've found over the last couple of years in, in, in HR tech um, and probably AI more generally is there's a hell of a lot going on in in in, uh, in, in, in Paris and and you know also in other places in France. I was talking to somebody from Lyon the other day, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, you know, a whole bunch of stuff going on in HR tech in Lyon. But um, talk to me a little bit about the about you know the French uh, the French tech scene and 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 what makes it you know why is there you know so much happening in 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 France? What 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 have they got? What's going right in France at the moment? Mm. Look, 
I mean, everything you said to a large extent is true. Uh, you know, there are often strikes and uh, we have two hours, uh, two hours lunch and everything is true. And, and frankly, I like, I, I like it very much. So I, I wouldn't change it for, for, for anything. But that said, I think, and it's going to sound cheesy, but I, I really do think that France is uh, one of the most amazing countries to launch a business at the moment in tech. Uh, there is one, there's a lot of support and momentum from, you know, various governments and, and it's been true for the last decade. Uh, there is really a lot of, you know, support you can get. It's getting easier and easier to, um, you know, start a business and to get uh, initial funding and to really, you know, get started. Get started is getting almost as easy as it can be. Uh, and and frankly, this is uh, uh, this is uh, this is super encouraging. The other thing is, <clears throat> there's been a first generation of entrepreneurs that launched startup. I think early 2010 or just before that period and that had, um, you know, quite successful exits and they are trying currently to kind of give back to the ecosystem. So we have uh, common contacts with, uh, with John and Clément, for instance, at PeopleDog. They, they sold their, their company to Ultimate for uh, quite a lot of money. Um, um, Stephen Paul, what's up? including Revere, actually, Clément sits, uh, sits on our board. So you have this whole generation of entrepreneurs that are really, one, giving back and investing and supporting, similar to what you right? I think, um, you know, uh, Silicon Valley is largely built upon you know, successful entrepreneurs that are reinvesting. So that's, that's, that's one thing. The other, the other thing is, with these successes that we've seen, um, founders in France are getting uh, more and more Ambitious. Um, uh -huh. If you take, you know, us as an example, uh, when we launched our first business, we only thought about it as a as a French a French business, right? We were selling to French companies, and the product was in French. And you know, maybe getting to another country was something an adventure we would kind of start, but it it wasn't top of mind, right? Uh, and now, with the experience we have accumulated over the years, and the first experience and SAP and so on, when we started thinking about uh, the next the next projects um, the key element we had on the you know on the on the whiteboard was how can we go global right away right how can we design a product that is you know in english that feels you know us or global right from the start so i i'm not sure we are successful in that uh, we have good signs and actually half of our users are us based companies these days uh, but this, this is really something we wanted to do, part of, part of our ambition, right? So, and it's a big mindset change. We have seen, you know, founders like, uh, you know, the guy from Datadog who went to New York is now one of the biggest success in tech. Algolia as well, that has established presence in the U.S. very early on. Content Square recently, um, they raised, I think, 500 million. Uh, so it's, you have a bunch of examples now that you can follow uh, mm -hmm. and people that you can easily reach out to to get, you know, just... Uh, just more, just support, funding, advice, uh, and it's available. So it's it's a sign of an ecosystem that is uh, maturing. Um, and now, instead of you know aiming for 100 million or 200 million exit, uh, you see more and more founders that are, you know, um, getting funded uh, with the, the idea of creating you know 1 billion or 10 billion uh, valuation company. Uh, maybe they will get there, maybe not. But just having the ambition uh, and make it feel like it's possible to the ecosystem, I think it changed uh, a lot um, um, the landscape uh, all in all. Um, and then the last point is, um, 
you know, the VCs, the VCs, it's not just about France. I think it's about Europe, but all tier one VCs, uh, especially the US ones, you know, from Sequoia to, to Axel and many others, they have established presence. It's mostly in London, but they usually have a partner covering France and other European countries and access to, you know, high valuation and a large investment, even at seed stage. Uh, is now available, even if you stay in Europe, even if you founded your company in Europe, even if you operate from Paris, um, you know, it's, it's now possible, uh, to do a 5 million seed round with Axel, um, while, you know, building your company from Paris or anywhere else in Europe. And that's also a big, big change, right? And it pro- probably was accelerated by COVID. Um, and, uh, and that's a big change because, uh, 10 years ago, uh, we had, um, beside multiposting, my, um, uh, co-founders, Stefan and Gauthier, they launched another HR tech startup in the U.S. They raised, uh, a $15 million seed round in 2010 with Matrix Capital, uh, in, in Silicon Valley. When they've done that, it was probably, you know, one of the, uh, one of the best seed round ever for a European company. Um, and, and now you see, you know, uh, you see that kind of thing happening almost every day or every week in France. So it's, it's, it shows how fast it has evolved and, and how big it can become. So, so I think you're dead right. The whole funding environment in France has, has, has shifted dramatically over the, last, over the last few years. The VC community, I think they're also uh, uh, a lot more uh, French VCs as well, like local VCs that, 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 that are, you know, are, are very competent. There's several that I've dealt with recently. Um, and I think also the... You know, in, I think in contrast to the German government, I think the French government has been much more cognizant of the need to, you know, remove bureaucracy and and to create a uh, funding and tax break environment that makes it, you know, makes it easy for, you know, for um, startups and for investors. I think the French have done a better job than the Germans on that um, at this point. I'd say there's another point that that, that I've I've uh, uh, picked up is that there is a a strong um, education system in France that is turning out quite strong um, uh, mathematical and and computer science graduates who are you know, capable of doing quite sophisticated machine learning and 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 AI. So you know, there's a kind of a, if you like, it's almost an, an AI hub in Paris that is quite that is quite strong and self uh, you know and self reinforcing. Um, would you agree, Sam? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, you can hire uh, an engineer from, you know, Polytechnique, which is the best engineering school in, in France and probably one of the best in Europe. Um, you know, a, a young grad, probably for, you know, 50 or 60, 60K a year. Uh, and I can tell you for a fact, they are really, really good. Um, you know, I'm not playing the comparison game between, you know, uh, here and the US and so on, but... Uh, the cost comparison is uh, unbeatable, right? So you can build and assemble a team um, because even if talents like that are scarce, uh, they are more available than most places uh, and especially the US and also they come cheaper, right? Uh, And so when you think global and you have access to capital uh, from France, just like any US-based business or any business based in the UK, for instance, so it means that you have the you know, um, you, you, you get investment from people that are not afraid of hiring engineers for 150 or 200K. For the same price, you can get two or three uh, that are even, uh, in some cases, more talented. Um, it gives you 
a lot of you know space to invest and and build our stellar tech teams. So that's that's frankly, and and by the way, many French companies are opening an office. French startups are opening an office in the U.S. If you take Algolia, I think that they have uh, a large portion of their tech team that is in Paris. Same for Content Square, uh, and most of the business operations are in the U.S. Right, so it's it shows that the R&D center. Um, it's still located primarily uh, in France and in Europe because there is a better access to talents and you can have a much larger team for the same price and, 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 and better productivity uh, overall and quality. Right. But so there's a perception that, you know, that you, that, you know, from, I think from outside, you know, outside France or at least outside continental Europe that, you know, it's dangerous to hire people in France because you can't, you know, it's hard to fire them and it's hard to, you know, there's lots of labor law costs and, 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 you know, your, your perception is that a lot of that is actually is actually a myth. I mean, it's probably harder to fire people uh, in France than in other countries, especially UK or the US. But you know, at the end of the day, uh, you're never hiring anyone to, f- to you know to fire them. Exactly. Right? So it's, it's 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 if you think this way, then you probably have a problem from the start, in my opinion. And and it's not really because you can't fire people that you won't hire them. Just just work on your hiring process, right? Yeah, of course that's bias from a man that used to build recruitment software. But we will we will. Um, I think you have <laughs> nevertheless. I think you have a strong you have a strong point there. The 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 again related to that, I think the the. You know, there's this perception again, going back to my sort of slightly cynical introduction, overblown introduction on the on the France thing. But you know, when you look at the actual you know landed cost of an engineer in, in in France, there was always this perception that France is a high cost country. But actually, I think for 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 engineering capability, I don't believe that it is. It's definitely not. And you know, not not to get too specific, but we have something called uh, Crédit Impôt Recherche. So it's uh, it's a tax return basically on R&D and innovation. So you can get uh, 30% tax return. So basically, uh, if you invest 100k uh, fully loaded on an engineer, you get 30k back from the government. Uh, if you can prove that they are working on innovative stuff, and if you code, then that's that's definitely align with the definition. So uh, I would argue that uh, it's in fact the opposite. Uh, if you hire engineers in the UK, even Germany, I think, and, and, and especially the US, probably uh, the cost is, um, you know, it's, it's much cheaper. Even if I don't like to think this way, because, you know, it's um, you, you have to pay uh, and, and <laughs> give people the salary they deserve. But if you compare Silicon Valley or New York uh, with, with Paris, I think this is a no-brainer from a from a cost perspective, uh, not even mentioning the quality. Okay, that's that's so cool to know. It's so cool to 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 verify again because a lot of people outside don't 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 uh, don't see that. And I I do think there's a there's quite a lot going on in ML in Paris that I, I like. Um, you know, one of the things I think is that you know GDPR. Uh, a lot of people will say that who think about GDPR think that it's like a bad thing and negative and whatever. Uh, and there are elements to GDPR that you can you can point fingers at, but I think there's a more um, uh, cautious and um, uh, sensible approach to to ML when it involves uh, uh, people data uh, coming out of out of Europe and, and especially out of France uh, because of GDPR. You know, there's a a, a, a more cautious and and uh, ethical and realistic approach to to AI. Um, yeah, rather than seeing it as being able to save the world. Yeah. 
Hopefully, even if you know, um, we can't say it would be it would be it would be misleading to say that um, uh, France or Europe is leading AI in any way. <laughs> I think that GDPR or not, we are still uh, way behind our US companies. But yeah, it's true that having this regulation in place. And um, if I take us as an example, right when we designed the products, uh, we thought about how can we ensure GDPR compliance because we are enabling exchange of CRM data and CRM, you have you know companies and stuff that are not PII, but you also have a bunch of emails and names and, and actual people. So PII in the, in the data. So it's, it's potentially sensitive and, and, uh, and breaching compliance uh, on many levels. If you, if you start leaking that information. So um, if we were a U.S. company, probably we wouldn't have cared that much about that early on. And for us, it was uh, it was a design decision, right, to remove PII. So it's probably going to limit our ability to do things down the road and to provide feature and to kind of build models or whatever we want to do. But uh, in the long run, if you think ten, 10 years from now, there's a good chance that you know this regulation will. will somewhat normalized, right, um, yeah, across exactly. the ocean and everything. So maybe it's going to become an edge. It's, I'm still adding a maybe because, you know, we are so behind that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, that might be an area where uh, Europe was right to regulate. <laughs> it's not always the case, but maybe on this one it was the, it was the smartest move uh, and the smartest guy in the room that did that. Uh, well, I, th- I believe so. I think um, in, in the long run we have to look after people's data, you know, otherwise... Um, you know, otherwise this stuff's not going to work. Yeah. Yep. So, so any Simon, any kind of kind of I want to sort of sort of bring. We haven't had any questions from the floor. You know, sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't. But um, yeah, any final you know any final comments from 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 your side? Yeah, maybe one last thing because back to the initial question on the evolution of product management. It's uh, at the end of the day, this is a part about product management and building products. There is there is one thing that. Um, I have changed, so uh, you know. I thought I, I might share it with uh, with the audience. Is uh, um, you know, there's a new role that we are trying to um, include in our product team, which is user research. Uh, and at first, I thought that it was just one of the mission of a PM, right? And I came to realize that um, if you want to do user research properly, you need to have dedicated people because PM, what they want to do is sell their feature to the users. Um, so they are biased by definition and they never do proper research. And this is, uh, this is something I'm changing for, for, for my company and for myself, like start thinking about you know, doing research uh, and go beyond the data. Also talk to actual human being and understand how they work and what they need. Um, and this yeah. is, you know, this is something I wanted to share because that's, uh, over the past two weeks, this is a discussion we've had internally and, and, uh, I came to the conclusion that we need to have someone dedicated to that with a specific skill set and that is really, really new to the product organization in my opinion. And, um, and yeah, uh, and it's, it's proven, it's proven to be very valuable, uh, for us to think this way and to implement that kind of, uh, you know, mindset and processes. Cool. I'm going to give you a hint and give you a book you ought to read. Um, Teresa Torres has just brought out a new book called Continuous, Deli- Continuous Discovery Habits. Continuous okay. Discovery to. Habits. You need to read that because, you know, it will reinforce a lot of what you're, you know, what, what, of what you're saying there. Because I think, you know, on that, maybe it's just a point to wrap up. We should do a whole show on this. But you know, if you think about how engineering has shifted, right, it's very much towards continuous delivery. Right? You know, you're always building product. You're always shipping. Um, with product, 
you also need to get that same mindset. You know, you always need to be, you need to be listening to your customers continuously. Uh, you need to be learning all the time uh, rather than sort of doing a research project at the beginning of the, you know, beginning of the development cycle. You know, when you first start thinking of the product and then maybe a bit, a little bit later, you start talking to customers again once you've rolled it out. Actually, you need to be, you need to be really thinking about, about continuously engaging and learning from your learning with what your what your customers and your prospects and, and, and others want to get from your want to get from your system. So it, it really does make you start to rethink um, the the product management cycle. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about the development cycle, but I think it's you know how we how we how we think about product that, that's also becoming I think much more rigorous and much more you know, much more organized. And, you know, I think there are more and more professional roles like like user research that become really more important and sort of really at almost an anthropological level doing, uh, gee, that's a big word for this time of the day, um, uh, user, you know, user research. Some of it is in the data, but some of it is actually in the feelings and the perceptions of the, you know, of the, of the users. Yeah, I definitely agree. Cool. Simon, as always, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I, um, Thanks I for having me. You, I hope to see you in Paris again, uh, Paris again soon. I don't suppose you'll get to Heidelberg anytime soon, but um, uh, <laughs> I will probably be in Paris before you're in, 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 uh, in, uh, in Heidelberg. Or maybe I get to see you in Nancy, which will be even better. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I would be, I would be happy to welcome you over there. Cool. Thanks. Well, thanks excellent, for Simon. Thanks, thanks for being on the show, and uh, I'll post the recording in the next couple of days. Thank you, Simon. All right. Cheers. Thanks now. So Bonsoir. Bye. Cheers.